Welcome to a Lanyap episode of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am Boomer Redman. And we are recording over Skype through what has been a labyrinth of uh, different experiments on how to make this work today. I am currently on three different devices and holding a microphone that I purchased from Best Buy as a karaoke microphone in the year of our Lord, 2014. <laughs> so... Hopefully, this will turn out just as wonderfully as I'm hoping. Man, that's giving me flashbacks to recording a punk demo tape on a uh, Radio Shack microphone on a boombox in the early 2000s. I love it. (laughs) Well, through this convoluted setup, we are going to talk about some movies. I'm curious because there's nothing else going on in the world right now, or at least in my world. What movies have you been watching since the last time we talked? I have not watched a single film other than the film that we're talking about today. <laughs> I love since it. Since <laughs> we last spoke two weeks ago, I went into my Netflix watching history to see what I watched. I have watched the entirety of the second season of Umbrella Academy, which I thoroughly enjoy. But I was like, yeah, there's nothing in here that is a film. All I've watched is Black Lightning and Umbrella Academy. And then I tried to look at what I had watched in Hulu. But Hulu makes their viewing activity very difficult to get a hold of. All I know I've been watching is uh, catching up on this last final season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So all three of those things are comic book based, in case anybody was wondering who I was and what I was about. So I don't watch a lot of TV myself, but I was in the room with someone who was watching Umbrella Academy in the past week. And I got to say, the... Music drops on that show are so bafflingly bad sometimes that it's almost avant-garde. I heard a ska cover of a Billie Eilish song last week, which is not something I thought would ever happen in my lifetime. Oh, that was a great fight scene, though. I loved it. <laughs> it's a dorky show, so it kind of works for the, the format. Yeah, it's definitely of the genre of here are some needle drops from songs that everyone knows. I mean, it kind of reached its apotheosis with Suicide Squad, but it really is an appeal to the absolute lowest common denominator as far as that goes. But I still love it. It's beautifully shot. There are choices, and they are big choices, and not always the right choices, especially with regards to the music that they choose. But that's a complaint I have about a lot of other things that don't have something that is qualitative about them that draws me back in. There's a cover of Hello by Adele that's in Swedish that I think uh, really works in the context that it occurs in, but you are not wrong. (laughs) I just like the audacity of a ska cover of Billie Eilish. There's just such a odd, like, who asked for this absurdity that I have to respect the ambition of it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no one asked for this. We're, d- we're still going to record it. Bless the makers of Umbrella Academy. <laughs> well, you haven't been watching movies, but I've been watching very boomer-friendly movies, I would say. Boomer like me or boomer like the generation? Boomer like you. Uh, I've, been, I've been watching movies for you. <laughs> Tell me everything. I'm on board. Well, first of all, the uh, movie we're talking about today, Shirley, is very much of your brand, I would say. Yes. And I've watched a couple other movies to go with our movie of the month, which is Three Women from Robert Altman. I've just been kind of looking for pairings with that, Um, which is another like woman on the verge of a psychological collapse. Uh, In that case, it's three different women whose psyches collapse and meld. 
So I've been watching movies along those lines, like over the past couple weeks. And have you discovered anything about yourself? Or uh, I discovered that Persona might still be my favorite in the genre, even though I've seen a bunch of movies like this. Uh, I rewatched that at like one in the morning the other night, and it felt like living a dream. Uh, movie never stops being the weirdest example of a genre, even though it's like half a century older than some of these movies. Fair enough. But I did watch another Robert Altman movie when he was in his like early psychological horror phase, which I didn't even know was a thing until recently. Cause I'm so used to him having those like Nashville shortcuts, Gosford park type, like big cast comedies. I watched one called images that I think you would like a lot. It's from 1972 stars, Susanna York, and she is an author. Huh? Surely author alone in her house with her husband in like some sort of mountainside cabin. And she is breaking down psychologically. She cannot tell the difference between her husband and past men who have been in her life. Like he just sort of turns into them as he's talking to her. The editing's very disorienting in that way. Like people's personalities just sort of like switch out as she's talking to them. And then that includes her. She starts like almost like a doppelganger version of herself starts substituting for her husband as she's like talking to them. And she decides that these hallucinations have to stop. So she starts killing them off. And it's almost like a American version of a Jalo film with the sort of choppy psychedelic editing and all these like soft focus images of like chandeliers, like crystal (laughs) gems just sort of hanging from the ceiling. And the mystery at the center is not, you know, who the killer is, you know, it's the woman at the center of the movie. The mystery is, are these murders real or are they imagined? And it's just a very disorienting, strange film. And it feels sort of in line with the kind of stuff you like to watch. So you had me at mountainside, but (laughs) every step of the way I was still on board. I quickly pulled up the cast list. and I see that her husband is played by Rene Auberginois, who I do love and adore not just because of his association with Star Trek, although that's there, but you may also remember him from The Eyes of Laura Mars, which is also an American giallo-ish film. I would say this movie's on a very similar tone as Laura Mars. What it was making me think of whenever you were talking about it was Puzzle of a Downfall Child, which, as we know, I completely and utterly adore now and forever. I will say Puzzle is much better okay (laughs) lesser scene though like a lot of people have this like fondness for images and i i can see it in the craft when you sort of dig into what the movie's trying to say it's a little muddled like part of what's breaking her down is like she has these lingering guilts from like past adultery uh indulgences which is not that interesting of a tract but you know at the same time all three or four of the men that are sifting and changing personalities before her eyes are all sort of hounding her for sex at all times. So it is one of those like patriarchy drove me mad type stories, which is like all of Puzzle of a Downfall Child. Fair and true. Was Puzzle of a Downfall Child also the one that, you know, we could not find a copy of and then it's coming to Criterion? Was it that one or was it one of my other Women on the Verge movies that you sent me the text saying that it was finally actually getting a real DVD release? That was an unmarried woman oh. <laughs> I bought like a bootleg DVD of to be able to watch it. And then Criterion announced like, I think within six months that they were going to do a disc. Oh, of course. Um, I think Puzzle is only available on YouTube. It has no official distribution, which is 
kind of pathetic. And the version on YouTube is uh, not very good either. It certainly didn't compare to the print that I was fortunate enough to see in the Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown film series that Jasmine Moreno actually programmed that summer at the Alamo Draft House, which was, of course, named for what will be our next movie of the month. Yes, and uh, I'm actually going to do a bunch of Emotivar movies with Hana on the podcast to cover that movie of the month cycle, too. So I'm really looking forward to catching up with a bunch of his movies. The other one I caught up with from 1992 was Single White Female, which is the uh, trashy version of this uh, type story. You would think it is, but if you compare to The Roommate with Leighton Meester and Minka Kelly, which came out about uh, 10 years ago, which is the trashy version of Single White Female. I mean, you can always go lower. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Tell me about uh, your feelings about Single White Female. I mean, it's pretty much what you'd expect it to be. It's like a erotic thriller from that, like, Joe Esterez, Adrian Lin era where this roommate that this uh, woman who's living alone in New York takes in, tries to steal her persona and, you know, becomes basically like a full on slasher villain towards the end after, you know, having these alarming sexual urges, like the need to masturbate in the middle of the night or having a cocktail and an S and M club that makes her like this, like scary figure. But I actually found it to be a great film, not only because those erotic thrillers from that era are, are fun, but just because uh, Jennifer Jason Lee in that role as the villain is so fun to watch and like so compelling. Like she just makes really strange, upsetting character choices the entire film. And it's, you know, she turned it into a meal. It could have been fast food, but it was a meal. Jennifer Jason Lee always will turn it into a meal. That is her wheelhouse. Have you ever seen The Roommate? I had never heard of it till you referenced it when we were writing about three women. It came out in 2011. I remember I was in grad school and it was, I guess, a Leighton Meester vehicle because if I remember correctly, Gossip Girl was still on the air at the time. But what the roommate, which is terrible, has over Single White Female is that in Single White Female, Jennifer Jason Lee does not rip out a character's belly button ring in a fit of peak, which does happen <laughs> in the roommate. And the roommate itself is like a pretty fascinating time capsule in the sense that it's a movie that came out in theaters. But when you watch it, you're like, oh man, if this came out even just a year later, this would have been straight to Netflix. It was like the last of that, oh, we made a movie that definitely should have been direct to video, but is too violent for it should have been made for TV, but is too hypersexual to be on Lifetime. So we're just going to stick it in theaters and hope it makes some money, which I guess did. Horror movies usually do, but uh, yeah, that's where we're at. The roommate is worse. It is much trashier than Single White Female. It makes Single White Female, in comparison, look like nostalgia. And it doesn't have that amazing shot of Steven Weber getting a stiletto driven into his brain, which is a pretty great kill. Not to try to trump the nipple ring uh, gore. It is a belly button ring. If it had been a nipple ring, I would definitely say it wins. But, but a belly button <laughs> ring does not win over America's Darling, <laughs> Stephen Weber, um, you know, of Wings fame, getting <laughs> a stiletto through the ring.
are putting on clean clothes and sitting at the table for a proper meal. I can't. You will. Besides, it's cocktail hour. <laughs> up, 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 up. It's going to be so dull. Well, I didn't ask you to behave at the table. <laughs> so keeping in line with this tapestry of mad women driven to the brink of insanity by the patriarchy, uh, we have Shirley, which is a 2020 film. And I would also say this is the story of three different women in a way. Hmm. Yeah. Well, in a couple ways. In the movie itself, there are the three women. There's Shirley Jackson, who's played by Elizabeth Moss. There is this young woman who comes into her house to sort of come on as a homemaker, which we could talk about how that happens. It's really uh, fucked up. Yes. And then the woman that Shirley Jackson is writing about, this girl that disappeared from the college campus where she lives and works ostensibly, sort of melds personalities with the young woman that she's taking under her wing. But there's also the three women behind the camera. There's Josephine Decker, who is the director. This movie is very much in line with what she usually makes, which are these like really immersive experiential films where you're like really up close and personal with someone's like tactile subjective experience. So the movie's got these like weird dream sequences and these like really intense sexual exchanges that are like very physical and not romantic. And then we have Shirley Jackson herself who has her own backstory just from a biographical standpoint of writing, I, I think horror was her main genre. Uh, sort of. Well, I, w- I would say that you are probably more versed in Shirley Jackson's backstory than I am. And I'm probably more versed in Josephine Decker's catalog than you are. Uh, absolutely. As far as Josephine Decker goes, possibly as far as Shirley Jackson goes. And the middle ground we might have is that Elizabeth Moss is the centerpiece And she has been doing these like psychological breakdown performances for our entertainment in films like Queen of Earth, Invisible Man, Her Smell. She did one recently called The Seagull that no one watched and I really liked. And that one, she's like kind of having fun with her emotional breakdown. And I I feel like this movie touches on those same tones where um, this isn't totally traumatizing the way her performances can be. There's a smirk to it. Yeah, it has a, a definite Queen of Earth energy. Yeah, there's a little subversive fun there, too. Yeah. Well, I will say, when I first started watching this movie in order to prepare, I did not care for it. I was immediately (laughs) very upset as, like, a person who loves Shirley Jackson and, like, knows about her life. So let me me just go ahead and say, in the year of our Lord, 2011, I was fortunate enough to be enrolled in a class at the University of New Orleans that was taught by Catherine Loomis, who is a brilliant, brilliant professor. And that year is also the year that Holland Emmerich's film Anonymous came out. Do you remember that one? I did not see that. It is essentially a dramatization of what's known as the Oxfordian theory of Shakespeare authorship, which contends that Edward de Vere, who was the 17th Earl of Oxford, was the actual author of the poems and plays that we traditionally attribute to Shakespeare. It's a long, disproven theory, but one that moves back around every once in a while. Because if we're being honest, most people think that Shakespeare's work is boring because all high schoolers encounter his work in the worst possible way. Like, plays are not meant to be read. They're meant to be performed on the stage and experienced as a performance. 
So to the teenage mind, anything that's critical of the legitimacy of the Shakespeare legacy is immediately accepted. And also everybody loves scandal. And because that movie was released to prepare us for the life of academia that was presumed to be ahead of us as graduate students, and knowing that said life would eventually entail requiring us to issue our own refutations of the Oxfordian theory, we spent an entire class day learning the facts as they are known in order to one day rectify bad knowledge about Shakespeare. So I feel in the Loomis tradition, it's my duty to do the same thing for uh, Jackson here as far as accuracy and context. Right off the bat, the film's premise is based on a longtime fiction. Uh, when Ruth Franklin wrote her 2016 biography of Jackson, which she researched for six years and which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Biography, she put the rumor that Hengzeman was based on the real-life disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon to bed. It's mostly a coincidence. What we do know from history is that The Lottery was first published in 1948. The film opens with Rosie reading that on the train. We also know that Hengzeman was published in 51. So this film has to take place somewhere in that time period. And it's important to note that the Hymans had four children. Uh, Lawrence was born in 42. Joanne was born in 45. Sarah in 48. And Barry in 1951. So there should have been two or three of Shirley and her husband's children in this film, right? Just based on the time period. So right off the bat, the fact that there are no kids in this house is not historically accurate. And from all accounts, those were largely genial years in like the Hyman household. Yeah, I know her son particularly has said that this movie like portrays his mom in a dysfunctional mental state that he does not remember like she would get out of bed and make breakfast and you know do household chores in a total functional cognizant way whereas the version of Shirley Jackson that Moss plays here is bedridden like too depressed to move unless she is engaged in her writing that's when she's alive otherwise she's kind of catatonic or psychologically torturing a woman who never should have been her housekeeper right In 2015, there was a publication, uh, an anthology of hers called Let Me Tell You, which was a collection of unpublished stories, personal essays, and some dictative lectures that she'd given on the subject of writing, as well as various other, like, writing ephemera. And the Jackson who is in those essays, most of them from the 50s, was pretty jovial and lighthearted. I mean, granted, the author is dead in both the liberal and figurative sense uh, in this case, but... There were a bunch of essays in that one. I wrote down some of the titles that I really liked. Like, Here I Am, Washing Dishes Again. And Mother Honestly, which is about how horrible it is to have a 12-year-old daughter. There's also an essay about how horrible it is to have a 13-year-old daughter and how horrible it is to have a 14-year-old daughter uh, in that same collection. So obviously there was some conflict with her daughters, but not to the extent of what we see on screen in this movie. And... Jackson is a woman with a unique insight into the human condition who really liked to turn her attention to the subject of childbearing and domesticity in some of her works. Like her most well-known works are The Lottery and uh, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which are thrillers, psychological thrillers. And of course, the most famous of the novels is The Haunting of Hill House, which is more than a thriller. It is horror and goes into that genre. 
But my personal favorite of her essays, and it's one that I think about constantly, at least once a week, is entitled, What I Want to Know is What Do Other People Cook With? That's the whole title. And basically it details Jackson's cooking utensil of choice, which is simply described as a five-inch, four-pronged fork that she uses for virtually everything. Scrambling eggs, lifting fried chicken out of a skillet, turning bacon. And it's so obviously written from the point of view of someone whose imagination is running constantly and whose <laughs> thought processes are in like a constant headlong flux and rush, even when she's doing the most basic banal activities, like taking the kids to Cub Scouts or frying an egg or brushing her teeth. And then the sort of psychodrama of that essay comes from the loss of this fork as a functional utensil, Jackson's attempts to find an identical or even suitable replacement, and the sense that something truly magical has been lost, as well as her own life. I reached out to my mother, and my mother had no idea how I could be possibly be so attached to a utensil of this type, etc., etc. So that's my very long-winded, and my apologies, introduction into the factual inaccuracy of Shirley. Uh, I turned it off, and then I turned it back on, and then I loved it. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, because, okay, this is an adaptation of a novel, right? Right. And I would say it probably has more to do with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the Edward Albee play, than it has to do with Shirley Jackson's actual life or persona. Um, Right. Which, for me, I don't care about historical accuracy with movies usually. Um, I understand that there's a very real person that this is representing and misrepresenting, but the result is so good that I have, I have a hard time being upset about it. I get it. I agree. I, from my personal perspective, I would have enjoyed this more if it had been a fictionalized version Mm -hmm. of Shirley Jackson and not, this is what Shirley Jackson's life was like. You know, if it had just been about, Oh, this is a woman writing a novel in 1949 or 1950 who experiences this psychological breakdown at the hands of her truly, truly terrible husband, which I really want to get into at some point. (laughs) Yeah, we need to get into that dynamic between the two couples, for sure. Which, that is pretty accurate, actually. Her husband, (laughs) it is true, as they presented in the film, that he fell in love with her based on a short story that she had published in the campus magazine. But Hyman was a very outspoken communist at the time and pretty progressive in his own way except in the sense that he very clearly wanted to have an open marriage Shirley was not happy about it she was not interested was not something that she wanted and he was a dog when it came to cheating on her and using the language of progressivism to kind of gaslight her about that so that's accurate uh, Michael Stolberg's performance as a very hateable Stanley Hyman did have the ring of truth to me. And I would say that relationship is actually the thrust of the film. So maybe, you know, getting rid of the day-to-day family dynamics of raising children so that they could just focus on that intimate animosity between the two of them might have been a little helpful because you just sort of live in the tension between them. Yeah. where She is like stuck in this house in the movie because of agoraphobia, but... In real life, probably because she doesn't have the same freedoms to, like, you know, fuck around the way he did. And he is off 
just being awful and comes in and antagonizes her and razzes her about her work. And the fucked up thing. And the reason I brought up who's afraid of Virginia Wolf is because they're both kind of having fun with it. Like they're having this like almost blackout drunk, dark game between the two of them where it's, it's a terrible destructive dynamic, but they're enjoying the ride uh, in this really fucked up way. And then they corrupt a young couple that comes into their house um, and basically create the same dynamic between the two of them who are just starting their life together with like their first child looking for their first home. And by the end of the movie, they've basically become a little tinier version of Shirley and her husband. Yes. I uh, will say the who's afraid of Virginia Woolf plus Shirley Jackson equals Shirley is like the Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter of like (laughs) smashes between fiction and reality. But that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. In fact, I thought that you would be amused by this. The Times actually called Jackson in the 50s the Virginia werewolf of seance fiction. <laughs> because of the similarities, I mean, at that time, it, Virginia Woolf and Jackson were both like notable feminist writers. So that's like an obvious um, comparison to make. But also, Jackson's kind of strange obsession with the occult. Uh, in real life, and at least a little bit in this movie, was real. And so seances were a thing that actually she was completely fascinated by. So I thought that you would enjoy that tidbit, the Virginia werewolf of seance fiction. I love when she just declares, I am a witch halfway through this movie, too. And then, like, <laughs> that stuff comes out of nowhere, and it's treated very seriously. Like She um, casts these like fertility spells on the uh, young woman to make sure her pregnancy goes well. She even offers to cast a miscarriage spell if that's what she would rather. Yeah. Come in the woods and eat mushrooms with me. Put these nettles <laughs> under your bed. Like, Shirley Jackson, I can definitely believe, would actually do those things. <laughs> I think what she doesn't want is to be bored. That is her main motivation in most of these exchanges. She will destroy another person's life, a young person's life, to entertain herself, both sexually because there's a little bit of a queer spark between the two of them about halfway through the film it doesn't last very long she doesn't take it very seriously not as much as the younger person i don't think and also just at first just to pass the time like early on her husband says you have to get out of bed and come eat a meal at the table after like just not showering or rising to her feet for several days and she says no it's going to be boring and he says, I didn't say you had to behave at the table. You can have your fun. Right. Uh, and that's kind of where the downfall of the movie starts. Like she comes down to have fun with her new plaything and basically create a younger version of herself in the time that the woman stays with them. Yeah, I really liked that porch swing scene, as well as the outfit that she put on to come downstairs for that dinner. Everything that Shirley wears in this movie is a delight. I especially love the mallard shirt that she wears with the yellow skirt when they go to the Dean's house to circle back around real quick. You did mention her having her fun being encouraged by her husband in real life. He did encourage her to try and experiment with her. Some of his colleagues as well, from what we know based on her diaries, she only did so once and she did not enjoy it. She just felt like it gave, stanley more free reign to continue to be a dog and she was not happy about it which is uh something that you often see play out in uh unequal partnerships like 
this one, where you have one who's very controlling and one who's very talented. Take that, Stanley Hyman. (laughs) And the same thing with a young couple, too. Like, they're coming in supposedly to both start academic careers. And what happens, not really in a shocking manner, is like the man leaves to start a career as a professor. And immediately she drops all of her academic ambitions to basically run the household as a maid. Um, She's like sort of expected to drop everything in her life to cook and clean and raise a baby. And that's part of what drives her mad and surely sees it happening and is like, well, I might as well take you under my wing and show you how to have fun while you're stuck in this house um, being ignored. Yeah. It is Stanley's idea because Stanley is terrible where he's like, Oh, our housekeeper just quit. Can you maybe do some things around the house? Which we later learned did involve washing Stanley's underwear for an entire year, which Rose is (laughs) not happy about. And Fred instead of sticking up for his wife, is like, you know, maybe, maybe you should, you know, maybe uh, they are letting us stay with them. And then there's even the discussion of, uh, between Rose and Shirley, where she's like, oh yeah, once I have the baby, Fred says that I can go back to school. And Shirley's like, Fred says, Fred says, you're letting him control you. And it's almost like she's trying to save Rose from being controlled by her husband in the way that Shirley possibly feels like she has come to be controlled by Stanley by this period of time. Yeah. And she like sends her out on like fact finding missions and a little bit of light thievery to help her construct this novel. That was when I was one over. (laughs) That was the moment I was like, (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's go down to the post office and interrogate the mailman. I'm on board now. Yeah. She's like giving her little bits of mischief to do so that she is like violating rules and like, you know, breaking out from under her husband's thumb. And I really enjoyed that. And I think the fictional character that Shirley's writing the book about that takes on the avatar of this reluctant maid is another extension of that. She's like, this is what happens when you ignore women and devalue them and push them into a small corner. They feel like nothing and then they just disappear. And I think that's a really interesting, delicate thing that's like kind of on the back burner for the movie where the tensions in the forefront are so loud and ridiculous. Like it's kind of like playfully dark in a way that's like fun to watch. Like I really expected this to be a lot more traumatizing than it was. Is that because of your familiarity with Decker's other work? Yeah. I mean, what I would call her movies usually is just like experiential. Like you're in a main character's head. Reality's a little fluid the way that her movies are mixed sound wise, everything's like on the same volume level. So like conversations and like loud noises and things are all kind of just muddled and mixed together. And you feel kind of like dizzy and like you're losing your mind over the course of her movies. Sometimes I like that better than others. I think it worked really well in butter on the latch. Uh, Her last movie, Madeline's Madeline. I didn't enjoy as much as most people did, but I saw that one early on. So maybe I'd enjoy it more now that I'd like am on her wavelength a little more. And this one, I feel like toned that down a little bit, but when she does employ that, it works pretty well. Like when you're first introduced to the household, you join them like halfway into this like drunken party where everyone's already like three sheets to the wind. And if you've ever stumbled into that situation in real life, you know, it's like really discombobulating. Right. And then Shirley's kind of holding court. And in that sequence, you feel overwhelmed and dizzied. And I feel like that feeling crops back up several times over the course of the movie, but it's not the entire thing. Like I didn't feel exhausted by the end uh, in the way I usually do with Decker's movies. 
Yeah, I haven't seen any of her other works, and I was really interested in hearing how it compared to her other other films. I'd say it's a little sleeker. Like, it looks more expensive, and it's less trying to rattle you every second of the time. Like, it, it comes more in waves. Do you know that sex sequence where the younger girl mounts her husband finally after trying to get him to sleep with her uh, for yeah. over the course of several months. And there's a lot of up close shots of her like pushing him down as he keeps trying to rise up so that she could just like grind on him. That exchange, that sort of physical aggression and that up close internal experience, that was like pure Josephine Decker. Okay. It's just really aggressive and passionate and a little a little unhinged. <laughs> it's just, there's just a little like rough edge to it. We are like, wow, this is coming from like a raw, deeply hidden psychological place, you know? Right. I'd say the mushrooms exchange is there too. We're like right on top of them while they're like feeding each other these potentially dangerous mushrooms in the woods. It, it crops up a bunch, but it's not the entire experience this time. Okay. Without the Decker context, my first thought with the mushrooms was um, Phantom Threat, which also featured... <laughs> bringing someone down to size through the use of mushrooms. So I wasn't sure, but that's, that's interesting. Did the filmmaking stand out to you on top of, you know, the biographical associations? I really enjoyed the periods of silence. Sometimes there was music. Sometimes there wasn't. I loved those just like long lingering shots. It's basically just like the Kuleshov effect on yourself. Like, all you have to think about is how you feel about what you're seeing, where you know the feeling has been created through the editing solely as a montage rather than through any kind of narration or dialogue. So I thought it was very beautiful. I loved like the richness, not just of the costumes, which we talked about a little bit already, but that house, that sumptuous forest green library that Shirley writes in with the stained glass windows and the entryway door. I've been looking at a lot of home improvement projects lately, so I was very fascinated <laughs> by like her space. The only thing that really stood out to me as like something I did not care for was I have gotten a little bit tired of the presentation of panic attacks as like the blurring of the edge of the frame when Rose is taking Shirley out for the first time to go shopping for a dress for the Dean's party, and she's, like, leaning on her heavily. I think that that communicated that visually without having to do, like, the point of view shot of Rose's face with the edges blurred. I think that that's kind of, like, something that I'm, I'm getting to the point of being a little tired of, you know, I don't know if other movie workers care. But it totally was worth it to see the pure cinematic dialogue-free breakdown of Elizabeth Moss as Shirley in that dressing room trying to fit into that dress. It's like the world's least fun makeover montage. Like, <laughs> in the 80s or 90s comedy, there'd be some like fun pop track in the background, but instead it's just all sadness and self-hatred. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That, that's a really effective sequence. 100% accurate. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, I would say that like first person shot where like the edges are blurring. That is like what I mean by like experiential insular filmmaking. Like that is the Josephine Decker touch. I think is like when you're in a character's head and sort of like experiencing like the senses of the world through the filmmaking. But yeah, I could see how she's been doing that 
since the mumblecore days. So maybe at this point, like 10 years later, that's a little more of a cliche than it was at the time. It's a mumblecore move. That is for sure. (laughs) She ran in those circles, but I'd say her movies are a lot more like aggressive and ambitious than most of them. I feel like she takes really big swings, um, at least just with the psychology of her characters. You know, even with this one, really fucking with the real life story of a public figure that a lot of people would bristle at. Myself included. (laughs) I mean, fair enough, though. Like, I think she was ruffling feathers a little bit with that and basically just using a public figure to tell this story she was interested in, probably because she read the book and was like, oh, I want to hone in on that dynamic. It is very Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. If you like that, like, bitter academics, like, tearing each other down over cocktails. Um, and even the suggestion you were saying earlier where the husband's like, oh, our, our last maid just left. You get the sort of, like, implication that this is a cycle they go through and they just sort of, like, tear through young couples in right. this, like, cyclical game. Very similar to the Edward Albee play. And that's a play in a movie that I very much enjoy. So I, I didn't mind seeing it again through this different filmmaking style. Yeah, I feel like maybe I've been coming down a little more critically than I intend to. I, I did, in fact, truly enjoy this. I loved it. I just, at first, I was put off by the inaccuracy. But that's something that most people aren't going to know or care about. It's like when you get some NASA nerd who's like, well, there's no, you know, it always bothers me when they talk about X, Y, and Z. And it's like, nobody, nobody knows that. <laughs> and I accept that about myself that nobody cares that Shirley Jackson should have had three children when this movie was made. Nobody but me. <laughs> but I did enjoy it quite a lot. I'm glad that you recommended it. Well, let me ask you um, if we're going to wind down soon. This is like an Elizabeth Moss tour de force, the way that a lot of her movies are. Did she give you anything new here that you haven't seen in similar films from her? Or is there any like particular moments that you think are like, wow, that was like fantastic work from her? It's like a new high. Like, when I think of the iconic Elizabeth Moss acting moments, I think about Peggy Olsen and her box of goods moving up (laughs) to another floor. I think about Peggy riding that Honda motorcycle around in circles on that then. I think about her throwing that coffee cup into the lake in Queen of Earth at least once a month. I think about her throwing that coffee cup. Oh, and also <laughs> from um, The Square, that moment where she is interviewing the museum curator about women that he sleeps with and whether or not he remembers their names. And she's like, what's my name? And there's just silence for a moment as her mouth just gets wider and wider. Uh, it's even in the trailer for The Square. I remember that from the trailer and I haven't seen the movie. It's that good of a moment that I, I was picturing her doing it as you were describing it. Yeah, she's a great actress and I am exceedingly fond of her. I think that if there was a standout moment for me, it is that it's either the scene where she's trying to dress on or when she pours the wine on the dean's wife's couch, which is strange because as soon as I saw that couch, I was like, that couch is too nice. Something bad's <laughs> going to happen to that couch. And sure enough, what about you? Uh, the wine scene for me as well. It's such a microcosm of the dynamic where she will pull other people down to her level so that she can have fun with them on equal playing terms. So, like, she's brooding on this couch this entire party, watching this woman that her husband's sleeping with, watching her have this, like, sophisticated soiree in her, like, lovely home. And then as soon as they're alone together, she pours red wine all over her nice couch and then, like, 
gets on her knees on the floor next to her as she's like cleaning it up and like really talks to her in like this like real raw way that uh they have not interacted before yeah that's great he would be bored with you within a month you know it's very (laughs) i loved it it was great i love that and i love just the academic trigger words in this movie were really funny to me too i don't know if that was necessarily elizabeth moss moments but like when she says i'm writing a novel and like the whole room gets quiet especially her husband he's like oh fuck (laughs) (laughs) that was really funny and when he says to the uh, young protege that he takes under his wing, um, have you considered teaching on the high school level? Oh, I know. Oh. Oh, it's like stabbing him in the heart. It's so great. I just love that viciousness. I, I think, you know, you're mentioning Peggy Olsen earlier, and I'm thinking, like, she had so much fun with that role in certain times. Like, when she's strolling down that hallway with her stuff, she has this, like, really cool pair of sunglasses on, and she's, like, beaming. Uh, and we don't really get to see that anymore. And I really liked in this movie that she's sort of melding that like having fun energy with these like breakdown dramas where like she's a monster in this film and she's a monster with a shit-eating grin on her face and i really enjoyed that she really is incorrigible in this film well next week on the show we are going to talk about movies with lesbian romances at the center of them but they're going to be a lot less traumatizing than shirley and its ilk (laughs) uh we're going to talk about boarding school romances which, and tragically, I will admit. Oh, that's right. You watched uh, The Children's Hour. Yes. We watched The Children's Hour and Olivia and Madchen and Uniform, which are came out between the 30s and the 60s. So, you know, the uh, gay characters at the center of those films do not make it out well. But there's a blissful period before that hits. Except maybe in Children's Hour. That was just miserable all the way through. I have a real fondness for the children's hour. I saw it when I was uh, 17 at boarding school as part of a special project about paranoia and American film, where for four days we just talked about different uh, forms of paranoia of the American psyche as portrayed in films over time. So there was like paranoia about gender, paranoia about race, paranoia about politics, and paranoia about sexuality as embodied in the children's hour. And then again, later in, in and out, those were our two texts that we used for that. (laughs) So yeah, we're going to talk about the children's hour and other lesbian boarding school melodramas next episode. And in the meantime, Shirley is on Hulu. If you're interested in the film and haven't seen it yet. And if you're interested in the types of movies we were talking about today, we post daily reviews on swampflex.com. Check us out. Yeah. Check out our past coverage of puzzle of a downfall child upcoming coverage of Woman on the Verge of an Earth Breakdown, Queen of Earth, and other recommendations that you have, I'm sure. Three women. Three women. Movie of the month, right now. (laughs) It's great. Bye, everybody. Bye.